While the Greek and Roman worlds were still on the rise, to the east lay an empire the vastest yet in its size and the diversity of its nations, and renowned for its order and achievements. The first of many great empires that grew from Iranian soil, the Persian Empire of the Classical Age, whose kings marched against Greece and ultimately fell in the fullness of time to Alexander the Great, is known as the Achaemenid Persian Empire, so named for the ancestor of the clan that birthed its kings. Among the leaders and heroes of the Persians, the founder himself held pride of place in the memory of Persians and foreigners alike. The first king of kings of this empire, immortalized in history as Cyrus the Great. Like many illustrious kings of legend, his birth and childhood inspired tales of wonder, danger, and omens of future glory. The tale begins in dark days of tyranny, in the land of Media that neighbored the ancestral home of the Persians. From the myths told and retold about the reign of Astyages, the king of Media, his daughter, the princess Mandane, and the harrowing origins of Cyrus, emerges a tale of intrigue, betrayal, perseverance, and an unshakable destiny. When the Median princess Mandane was young, living at her father's royal palace, Astyages the king awoke one morning, terrified by a dream. He had dreamed of a huge flood coming from Mandane, which overwhelmed and destroyed his city and drowned most of his kingdom. Disturbed by this portent of ruin that seemed somehow mysteriously connected to his daughter, the suspicious Astyages interpreted the vision as a message, that after her marriage she would bear a son who would rebel against his throne and seize his power. And this was the great flood he had seen in his dream. To prevent what he feared from coming to pass, Astyages decided to send the Princess Mandane away from Media into a foreign land to marry and live far from his kingdom. And so the king selected Cambyses, the king of neighboring Persia, as the husband for his daughter. The land of Persia was then a small and confined land, and despite his royal status, Cambyses was far beneath Astyages in rank and power. The distance between Media and Persia was long, and the Persians' government and culture were seen by the Medians as simple, even crude, certainly no threat to the more sophisticated and powerful Medes, and no threat to Astyages' throne. So the Median king believed he had averted the omen, and Mandane was accordingly married to Cambyses and brought by her husband to her new home in Persia. But no sooner did Astyages think himself safe than another ominous dream disturbed his sleep. He dreamed this time that a vine was growing out of Mandane's body and rapidly flourished all over the land as he looked on. 
Bounteous green vines might symbolize prosperity and abundance, but Astyages saw no good omen in this vision. The vine had come from his daughter, and so new fears were awakened that a strong rival for his kingdom would somehow arise from the now-married princess, residing far away in Persia. The anxious king called together his royal soothsayers, the Magi, and revealed his dream to them, asking for their interpretation. And the Magi's response confirmed Astyages' fears. Mandane would have a son, who would one day become a mighty king. Astyages immediately sent word that Mandane should come home to Media, with the false pretense that he wanted to spend time with his daughter, as a father who missed her. But the true reason was his plan to entrap Mandane, to keep her close and under his control, so that he could put an end to the child foretold in his dreams as soon as he was born. And once the princess had made the journey home, she was given a stately house near his palace to stay, and was closely guarded by loyal men who kept a close eye, and who would do anything the king ordered. It soon became apparent that Mandane had indeed become pregnant by her Persian husband, and when the months passed by, the child was born. As soon as he heard this news, Astyages set his grim plans into motion. He sent for an official of his court, an unscrupulous and hard-hearted man named Harpagus, whom the king entrusted to commit any act on his behalf, however depraved it was. When Astyages met with his chosen assassin, he spoke to him. I have sent for you, Harpagus, to entrust you with a duty of great importance. I have complete confidence in your obedience and faithfulness to your king, and am depending on you to do the work I ask yourself with your own two hands. If you fail to do this, or try to evade your duty by putting it off on others, I promise that you will suffer severely. My beloved daughter has given birth. I wish you to take Mandane's child to your own house and kill it. You may do this however you please, and you may dispose of the body as you think best. What matters most is that you see to it, you yourself, that the child is no more. Harpagus replied that whatever the king commanded was his duty to perform, and went to take the baby from Mandane's home. The princess's attendants had been ordered to deliver the child to him as the king's agent, but suspected nothing of what Harpagus's true mission was. They dressed the newborn in fine robes, the richest from her estate. But when Harpagus arrived and took charge of the baby, dressed in its fine wrappings, a change came over him. Although he had had no hesitation before in carrying out the king's mission, he found himself overwhelmed by fear at the dark deed he was about to commit. He quietly sent word for a herdsman who tended the royal flocks, a man named Mithridates, to join him at his home, 
and then headed there himself with the newborn prince. When Harpagus arrived home, he nervously told his wife about what had just happened between himself and the king and what he had been ordered to do. She asked him what he intended to do now, and he replied that he had no desire to kill the child himself. It is the son of Mandane, he said, trembling with worry. She is the king's daughter, and if the king should die, Mandane would take his place, and then what a terrible danger would hang over me if she knew I had murdered her son. But Harpagus also would not dare to disobey Astyages' direct order and spare the child's life, and this is why he had sent for the herdsman Mithridates, whose pastures extended out to wild and desolate forests and mountains, where the baby could be taken and left to succumb to hunger or thirst or the elements. Harpagus would simply give the child to him and think nothing more about the matter ever again. While they were speaking, this herdsman came in, and was immediately alarmed at the frightened expressions of Harpagus and his wife, and the crying infant wrapped in extravagant robes. Harpagus gave the astonished Mithridates his command to take the baby and expose it in the wilderness, with no questions asked. The humble herdsman was too afraid to question a man of Harpagus's status, and promised only to carry out the orders. Without another word, he picked up the child and carried it away, and Harpagus sent a servant after him to explain the seriousness of the matter more fully. Eventually, Mithridates returned with the newborn to his rustic hut, where his own wife, a woman named Spaco, was waiting. It so happened that the herdsman and his wife had just then lost a child of their own, who passed away as a newborn. The grieving wife's tears were relieved for a moment upon seeing the baby boy in her husband's arms, so magnificently dressed. Mithridates told Spaco everything about his visit to Harpagus, as they both wondered in amazement at the child under their roof. He said that when he first entered the house of Harpagus and saw the baby lying there, and heard the demand to leave it to die, he had assumed that the child belonged to some servants of the household. But the exceptionally fine clothes that swaddled the baby, and the extreme anxiousness of Harpagus and his wife, were bewildering to him. But Harpagus's servant had revealed the incredible truth, that this child was the son of Mandane, the very daughter of the king, and he was to be put to death by the orders of Astyages himself. Mithridates and Spaco soon found themselves in the same heart-wrenching dilemma just felt by Harpagus and his wife. Mithridates said that the child couldn't possibly be saved. Harpagus's commands were stern, and he would be coming to ensure that they had been carried out. What if he demanded to see the child's body as proof? But Spaco, a grieving mother, only began to feel more and more deeply for the newborn, and pleaded with her husband that they should find a way to spare him 
and it was then that a solution presented itself. As evidence that the royal baby was indeed dead, they could show Harpagus the body of their own son instead, the poor child lost just recently in their own home. One newborn would be exchanged for another. Their natural son would be buried with all the honors of royalty, while the son of Mandane would be raised as their own with no knowledge of his true origins. And so they took off the splendid robes which adorned the living child and put them on the dead one. The newborn prince was dressed in the coarse garb of a herdsman's son. Mithridates placed his own dead child, completely disguised as it was by the royal clothes it wore, in a little basket. And he took the body into the wilderness and left it in a deserted place with an attendant of his entrusted to keep watch over it to ward off any animals who might devour it whole. After three days, the body was brought back to Mithridates' hut, and Harpagus's men were summoned to verify that the deed was done. The royal robes that wrapped the small corpse raised no doubt in anyone's mind that the herdsman had fulfilled his promise. And so Harpagus returned to the king Astyages to confirm that he had executed the king's orders to the letter, and Mandane's child was no more. The king rested easy that he had at last escaped the omen. Harpagus put the whole affair behind him. Mandane bitterly mourned the loss of her son year after year, and the herdsman and his wife raised the newborn as their own, his real identity kept secret from everyone. And this child was named Cyrus. Ten years went by, while Cyrus enjoyed a happy, humble childhood with the herdsman and his wife. But as he grew up, his true character began to reveal itself. In his games with other boys, he was a natural leader and clever strategist. When he played with the sons of lowborn and noble parents alike, he directed the games and arranged the rules by which he made everyone abide. One day, the son of a royal official named Artembaris had joined the village boys to play when an argument arose between him and the young Cyrus who had, as usual, become the leader of the game. When Artembaris's son wouldn't follow Cyrus's lead, Cyrus had the other boys take hold of him and punish him with a beating. When Artembaris's son went home and complained to his father about his treatment by a village boy, Artembaris went to King Astyages himself and asked for Mithridates's son to be held responsible. Astyages agreed, and sent for Mithridates and his son to come to his palace in the city. When they arrived, Cyrus held himself confidently and courageously in the king's presence, and Astyages was struck by the young boy's character. When he rebuked him about his beating of Artembaris's son, Cyrus defended his actions as the just actions of a ruler 
proper for his authority in the game they were playing. And if Astyages saw fit to punish him, he would submit to his judgment as the king. Astyages was all the more astonished after hearing the boy speak. Even at ten years old, he had the poise of an adult and carried himself like a nobleman instead of the son of a herdsman. He sat in silence for a long time, and as he did, he looked intently at the features of the boy's face. And as he did, he thought for just a moment that he saw the lines of his daughter Mandane's face. But he banished the thought from his mind, as the memories of the murdered prince, now a decade old, began to flood back. At last, he broke his silence and dismissed the audience except for the herdsman Mithridates, whom he asked to come closer to his throne. Astyages looked the herdsman in the eye and in a solemn tone questioned him as to whose son the young Cyrus really was. When he heard the king ask this, the poor herdsman was terrified. He stumbled through the response that Cyrus was, of course, his and Spaco's own son. But the attempt failed to convince the distrustful mind of Astyages. The king was convinced that there was something mysterious about the boy's origins, which the herdsman was keeping secret. So he assumed a displeased and even threatening expression to intimidate the herdsman, and commanded his guards to take Mithridates into custody. This gambit worked when the frightened Mithridates broke down and promised to explain the whole matter. And so he did, recounting all that had transpired among himself, his wife, and Harpagus on that fateful day ten years ago. Astyages listened intently to the whole tale, betraying no emotion as the herdsmen revealed it all. And when Mithridates had finished, the king relaxed his stern appearance, and to the great surprise of the herdsmen, reacted joyfully to the news that the child was alive after all. Inwardly, Mithridates was relieved, but perplexed, as it was Astyages' original orders that had once doomed the boy to death as far as he knew. But unexpected though it was, Astyages' happiness seemed genuine enough to the herdsman, and the king exclaimed his excitement at being able to raise his grandson after all. Mithridates was sent away to rejoin Cyrus, whose true identity was now fully exposed. Once in his own company, however, Astyages' mood changed instantly, and his face grew dark and creased with pained worry and rage. He was a masterful actor, a skill learned through his decades at the apex of power, and he needed for those who had disrespected his rule by keeping the boy alive to suspect nothing of the fury that was coming. Rather than lash out at once, the king coldly deliberated how to avenge himself on Harpagus, the man responsible for the boy's survival, 
now a traitor and a coward in his eyes. When he had formed his plan, he sent word for Harpagus to come join him at the palace, and Harpagus came. The king began the conversation by asking Harpagus how he had put the newborn child of Mandane to death all those years before. Harpagus replied by admitting the whole truth, confessing that he had not committed the act himself, but given the baby to the herdsman to dispose of in the wilderness, and that the child's lifeless body had been presented as proof three days later. Once again, Astyages reacted to the tale with a show of gladness, and revealed to Harpagus in return that the herdsman had spared the royal child after all, and the boy named Cyrus was still alive. After he was dead, or so I thought, said the king with emotion in his voice, I bitterly regretted my orders to end his life. I couldn't bear my daughter's grief. But all is well now that the child is alive, and tonight I shall put on a grand banquet to celebrate. Astyages then requested that Harpagus send his son, who was about thirteen years old, to the palace to be a companion to Cyrus, and he sent a relieved Harpagus away with words of praise and honor and a special invitation to return for the banquet later on. The old courtier went home, trembling at the thought of the danger he had just escaped so narrowly. When he arrived home, he called his son and directed him to prepare himself to go to the king, and soon sent the boy on his way. He told his wife about what had just transpired between himself and Astyages, and she rejoiced with him that an event that could have destroyed them had ended happily beyond any expectation. Soon it was time for the banquet, and again Harpagus left his estate for the palace. And it was a grand dinner indeed, one teeming with food, drink, and good cheer. Harpagus was seated in a place of honor at the table. A whole variety of dishes were brought in and set before the different guests, and were eaten without a second thought. Astyages kept his eyes trained on Harpagus, still masking his wrath with a cheerful veneer. But toward the end of the feast, Astyages rose and asked Harpagus before all the guests what he had thought of the meal that was set before him. On hearing this, Harpagus sensed danger, but only answered that he was very pleased with it. With a wicked grin spreading across his face, Astyages then told him there was plenty more of the same dish, and ordered the servants to bring a basket in. They came at once and uncovered the basket before the guests, and inside was a sight that made the onlookers recoil, and Harpagus nearly faint from horror. When he looked into the basket, he saw the head, hands, and feet of his son, the very one he had just sent to the palace hours before, 
when he had been trapped, hacked to pieces, and roasted by the king. As the basket was held open, Astyages bid Harpagus, with a callous laugh, to help himself to whatever part he preferred to eat next. Harpagus, for all the revulsion and grief washing over him, resolved not to play into the king's hands. Survival and justice would require a cooler head. And so he maintained his composure and acted as if nothing unusual had happened. The king asked him if he knew what he had been eating, and Harpagus said that he did, and that whatever was agreeable to the will of the king was always pleasing to him. When the banquet was finished, Harpagus returned home to his wife and was hardly seen in public again. Astyages' revenge on Harpagus for his failure only gave the mad king a short-lived relief. Now that his grandson's survival was revealed, the old creeping fears that had begun with the fateful dreams all those years ago returned to torment his mind. That the young boy Cyrus would one day take away his kingdom and spread his power over the land like a sweeping tide or a flourishing vine. He decided to send again for the Magi, his royal soothsayers, to ask their judgment on how he should proceed now that his prophesied young rival had returned. The king told them everything, from the beginning of the whole tale to the time when Cyrus had made his reappearance, following his game with the other boys and his summons to the palace. And when Astyages had mentioned that game, during which the son of Artembarus had been beaten for disobeying Cyrus's pretend kingship, the Magi suddenly exclaimed that the answer had been found. You see, my lord, that the boy has already been a king, they explained, and so the danger has passed. It is true that he has ruled a kingdom, but it was only in a game, a fact that the dreams omitted. You have no cause to fear, your majesty, and you may send the boy back to his parents in Persia with peace of mind. The king was pleased with his optimistic interpretation and would take their advice. But at the same time, he ordered the Magi to stay vigilant in case any signs or omens ever appeared to threaten his power, especially from the young Cyrus and they obediently promised to do so. With this settled, the king then sent for the boy and explained everything to him about his true parentage. He was not the son of the herdsman Mithridates and his wife, but a royal prince, born to his daughter Mandane and Cambyses, the king of Persia. And it was time for the boy to leave Media and return to his rightful home. As soon as the preparations for his journey had been made, Cyrus set out with a royal entourage for Persia. When he arrived at his parents' estate, 
They were speechless in amazement at what they heard, but soon their astonishment gave way to overwhelming joy as the family was reunited at long last. Over the next several years in Persia, Cyrus grew into a man, distinguished for his strength and feats of courage, as well as his magnanimous character and the sharpness of his mind. And as he grew, he began to set his sights on grander and more impressive goals, maturing from the games and sports of youth to the arenas of statecraft and war. He led armies at the side of his father Cambyses until the time when the king passed away. And the throne of Persia, still under the greater control of Media, now passed to Cyrus. And far away, back in Media, the wheels of Cyrus's famous destiny were already beginning to turn. The disgraced courtier Harpagus had suffered the murder of his son and the gruesome mutilation and display of the body at a royal banquet, all at the hands of the tyrant Astyages. Though he had kept his silence at the time, knowing full well that he was powerless against the king, his heart had been bent on revenge ever since that day. For fifteen years he sustained his rage and sorrow, and all the while dreamt of Astyages' downfall. And for this, his plans naturally turned toward Cyrus, now grown from a boy into a man, and the king of Persia. As much as he could, he corresponded with Cyrus, befriending him, but taking care never to alert the spies of Astyages, who monitored all communication to Persia with a close eye. He kept Cyrus informed of the abuses and negligence of Astyages and his regime, and also of Media's weak defenses, which a strong army and resolute commander could easily overtake. Through these messages, he tried to gain the confidence of the Persian king and whet his appetite for a move against Media that would unite their neighboring lands under his kingship. Within Media, Harpagus surrounded himself with an alliance of others who had been victimized by Astyages, while spreading word about the glory and virtues of Cyrus the Persian. The seeds of a rebellion at home were already sown. All that was needed now was for Cyrus to lead a war and take the power that Harpagus was working to place in his hands. And soon, the opportunity arose, when resentment against Astyages among the Medes was deep enough for Harpagus to make his move. He would send a message to Cyrus, insisting that now was the time to strike. But the question was how to safely deliver such an explosive and treasonous message to Persia, with the mad king Astyages none the wiser. And this was the scheme Harpagus devised. He wrote a letter to Cyrus, then took the body of a hare that some of his huntsmen had caught for him and concealed the secret message inside the hare. The animal was sewn up again with such care that the opening could barely be noticed. Then he gave the hare 
along with a full kit of hunting gear, to some trusted servants who were ordered to bring the hare as a gift directly to King Cyrus in Persia. He was clear that the hare should never leave their possession, and only the Persian king was to receive it. When they met Cyrus and handed the hare over to him, they were instructed to tell him to open the animal's body with only his own two hands, and only when he was sure he was alone. And with that, the servants were sent away to Persia in haste. In the event they were stopped by spies of Astyages, the hunting gear would give them excuse to claim that they were merely returning from a hunt with the dead hare as their innocent game. The plan worked perfectly, and Harpagus's men crossed into Persia without any trouble, delivering the hare into Cyrus's hands. And when he was alone, as he had been told to do, he found the hidden incision in its body, opened it, and inside found the secret message of Harpagus. And this is what the message said. Trusted Cyrus, it is clear to me that you have the favor of heaven, and that you are destined for a great and glorious life. How else could you have escaped so miraculously the danger you entered into as soon as you were born? Astyages the king plotted your death and took care to ensure that the deed was done. It could only have been by the plan of the divine that you were saved. By now you are well aware of the extraordinary events that have spared you, and day by day you reveal the favor upon you with your success. And you also know what cruelties Astyages inflicted upon me for my compassion in saving you. The time for retribution is now. The power and kingdom of Astyages may be yours from these days forward. You only need to persuade the Persians to revolt against his tyranny. Put yourself at the head of an army and march into Media. Astyages still suspects nothing from me, and the fool holds me in confidence. When an army is sent to oppose you, I shall probably be appointed its leader, and as soon as our forces meet, my troops will be yours, and I will be your servant. I have met with the leading men of Media, and they too, offended by Astyages, are all ready to champion your cause. You can rely on us to prepare everything for you here. Only come, rally the Persians, and march forth with no delay. On reading the letter, Cyrus was exhilarated. Hungering for the glory of kingship and victory, as well as justice for the crimes of Astyages, he hadn't a second thought about agreeing to Harpagus's design. Even before this letter, he had revolved in his mind the means by which he could rouse his Persian people to action. While Astyages ruled in Media, and his own kingdom was still beholden to the more powerful Medes, Cyrus couldn't openly announce his rebellion and gather an army, lest Astyages catch wind and crush the effort before it was done. So he resorted to a clever deception instead. 
Cyrus had a fake decree prepared, a forgery of an official command from Astyages that appointed him the commander of Persian troops to be raised in the kingdom's service. Cyrus read out the fabricated order in a public assembly of the Persians and called upon their warriors to join him. And when they were organized, he ordered them all to assemble on a certain day in a place that he named, and each one was provided with a woodcutting axe. When this was done, he marched them into a forest and set them at work to clear a broad patch of ground. The army toiled with their axes all day, felling the trees and piling up the wood to be burned. Cyrus kept them working in heavy and relentless toil, with hardly any food and rest. When night came, he dismissed them all and commanded them to return to assemble again the next morning. The weary soldiers did as they were ordered and shuffled back to the cleared forest from the previous day's work. But when they came together this time, they found no tools or hard tasks, but a rich banquet that had been prepared for them in the clearing with an abundance of food and flowing wine. And Cyrus invited them to spend the whole day feasting, drinking, and enjoying each other's company. The labors of the day before were all but forgotten as the troops sang, danced, laughed, and told stories all the day long. At last, as evening fell, Cyrus the king again called them together and put to the assembled army a simple question. Which of the two days had they liked better? The answer was obvious. There was nothing to like about the first day of endless toil, but everything to like about the second. Now Cyrus was ready to reveal his plan. Men of Persia, he said inspiringly, you have your destiny in your own hands to make all your lives pass like either of these days, just as you choose. If you follow me, you will enjoy glory, abundance, and joy. If you refuse, you must remain as you are, subjugated by the king of Media, the slaves of a foreign tyrant, who will keep you in chains unless you rise up and submit to him no more. Then Cyrus explained his intention to lead Persia against Media, and that a rebellion was already in motion among the Medes who had also suffered at the tyrant's hands. The soldiers reacted to this speech with applause and enthusiasm, and declared that they were ready to follow Cyrus wherever he would lead them. Soon more Persians were gathered to the king's banner, and an uprising was fully underway. As word spread, back in Media, Astyages was informed of what was happening, and all the old fears that had haunted him ever since his first ominous dreams were reawakened again. He furiously sent an order to Cyrus, summoning him immediately into his presence. At the head of his army, Cyrus sent back word to his grandfather that Astyages 
would see him sooner than he wished. And soon the Persian army had crossed into the land of Media. As Harpagus had predicted, Astyages swiftly assembled an army and thoughtlessly appointed Harpagus himself as its general, forgetful of the hideous cruelty he had inflicted on him years ago. And according to plan, no sooner had the Medes marched out and encountered the Persians led by their king than the vast majority of Astyages' army pledged allegiance to Cyrus or fled the scene outright. When this news reached Astyages, he sent another threatening message to Cyrus, promising no escape from the most painful punishments if he didn't turn back. And as an example, he took the council of Magi, who had claimed that the threat from his grandson had passed, and had each of them impaled, their pierced bodies left to decay on wooden stakes around the city. With his army now broken, as a last resort, the common people of Media were armed to defend Astyages' throne, the young and old alike. Soon Cyrus and his formidable army had reached the capital, and Astyages led his untrained forces in a desperate attack, one easily overwhelmed. Astyages lost the battle and his kingdom. He was captured and imprisoned as the victorious rebel force entered the city and made it theirs. Cyrus was king of Media and Persia both, and the Persians now ruled. Astyages was left alive to languish in captivity, and Cyrus took no further action against him. Once, soon after his imprisonment, Harpagus had paid him a visit and taunted Astyages for his failure, reminding him of the banquet all those years ago and the vile murder of his son. And he asked Astyages with cold satisfaction how it felt to have once been a king and now to be a slave. Astyages in turn berated Harpagus for betraying not just his king, but his whole country. For the rule of the Medes was over, and the people of Persia would be their lords. Astyages had ruled for 35 years, and just as he claimed, the land of Media was now subject to the Persians as Cyrus ascended the throne to unite both nations. The fateful dreams of the old king that predicted the rule of Mandane's son as an overwhelming flood and a thriving vine across the lands would prove its truth all the more as the decades rolled by, and Cyrus led the Persians, together with their swelling ranks of subjects and allies, to assemble the largest empire yet seen on earth, the Persian Empire. Through all his years of kingship and conquest, Cyrus the Great would show himself a generous, wise, and respected leader, and remain the model of a good king, not just among Persians, but Greeks, Jews, Romans, and many other peoples alike, both friends 
and adversaries of the dynasty Cyrus founded. Upon his death, a stone tomb was erected in his capital city of Pasargadae. When his grand Persian empire was finally eclipsed by the Macedonian Greeks led by Alexander, the conqueror was appalled to find that the tomb of Cyrus the Great had fallen into disrepair and commanded his own engineers to set it right. The tomb endures to this day, a lasting monument to one of antiquity's greatest kings. And an inscription carved upon it bears these words for passers-by. I am Cyrus, the son of Cambyses, who won an empire for the Persians and was sovereign over Asia. Do not begrudge me this memorial. <laughs>